from Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C. This is the HPS Insights Podcast. Welcome to HPS Insights, a podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies, analyzing the current events impacting the business and political communities. I'm your host, Rebecca Buck, a senior director at HPS. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Ali Vitali to the show. Ali is NBC's Capitol Hill correspondent, and you might remember her covering the 2020 campaign as an MSNBC road warrior. I'm so excited to talk to Ali about her brand new book, Electable, Why America Hasn't Put a Woman in the White House Yet. Ali, congrats on the book. Welcome to the show. Thanks, my friend. So happy to be here with a fellow traveler of the trail. Yes. Um, we uh, did not crisscross a ton because you, as readers of this book, will learn we're mostly covering the women candidates. I covered a lot of male candidates. I was covering Cory Booker, some Bernie Sanders, but we did um, have an Elizabeth Warren rally together at one yes. point. Um, it was always really fun to run into you on the trail. And reading this book for me was such a walk down memory lane. Uh, reading about your memories of covering these candidates um, and remembering sort of these new cycles that now have come and gone. Was there a moment that stood out to you most in covering these women candidates? Yeah, I think it actually started percolating for me on Memorial Day weekend in 2019, because I realized that I was doing an entire weekend of coverage of candidates. And then I get to Monday and I'm like, oh, wait, I just covered three viable presidential candidates and they were all women. And we've never seen that before. This idea that multiple women can be competing in a field and almost all of them are viable people who could become president. It was a really jarring moment for me. And I was both happy because it took me a little while to realize what I was doing. But also it presented the idea that it's still novel for us to be seeing women running in these numbers. And that needs to be normalized if we're going to eventually get to this goal of having a female elected president. Right. It was actually so striking to me how quickly it felt normal when, in fact, there's still this you know huge elephant in the room, this hurdle that hasn't been cleared of a woman actually winning right. for the White House. Um, but I guess the 2016 race did so much in making this feel normal. That said, there are still some elements of a presidential campaign when it comes to women candidates that feel different. The way they talk about mm -hmm. issues, the issues they're talking about. Um, tell me a little bit about the differences that you noticed covering women candidates for president versus some of the men. Well, look, there's a strategy that has to be employed to everything in politics, whether you're a man or a woman. But for women, they have to strategize a little bit more around the way that they present themselves to voters just broadly, like having to overcome the biases that people may bring to the table on women candidacies. So for example, even just the idea of how they introduce themselves in their own political story. I spotlight, for example, Senator Amy Klobuchar talking about the fact that she came to this as a mother who was kicked out of the hospital right after having her daughter because of the way that laws were written at the time and the lobbying effort that she went through with other mothers in her home state to get laws passed that made it easier for mothers who would come after her. That's an origin story that is someone coming out on behalf of their community and serving others' interests other than their own power and you know, questing for high office. That's important because especially for women, they almost need to couch their ambition in serving a larger community. That's when voters are most receptive to them. That's not to say that men don't have to do that. Certainly everyone who's running for president is trying to build a constituency and show that they can represent the largest swath of people. 
But for women, because ambition can be such a double-edged sword, there's more strategy around that. And you can literally see it in just the way that they present themselves to audiences and tell their story. It's much more beneficial to them electorally if they're doing it from the perspective of governing others, serving others, not just furthering their own political ambitions. There's the presentation side of this, uh, Mm -hmm. the way that women present themselves to the world, uh, how they sort of play up their positive qualities without uh, going too far. Ambition, assertiveness, toughness, when seen in a woman candidate becomes, you know, they're opportunistic, they're Mm -hmm. unlikable, they're bossy, God forbid. Yep. Um, Almost like, gosh, why could they want to be president so badly when it's like, you kind of got to run for that job to get it. <laughs> right, right. No one just kind of falls into it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so can you tell me a little bit from a strategic perspective, how did the campaigns think about this this time around? Um, lessons learned from Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. And what were some of the unexpected challenges that they came up against here? I actually think one of the things that always stuck with me was something that Secretary Clinton told me that she heard from the women who were running because most of them were in touch in real time with her. And for all of the women who ran in 2020, 2016 was a touchstone and they were basically required to understand the dynamics of it because they were competing in sort of the next salvo of what it took to go up against Donald Trump. So For many of these women, they, in some cases, campaigned for Hillary Clinton. They got to see the way that crowds would react to her. And then they got to see the way that the 2016 election played out. So certainly that was an instructive moment for them, not just because Hillary Clinton is such a trailblazer in this field, but also because they knew that they would be subjected to a lot of the same forces. And frankly, they wanted to to avoid some of the pitfalls. But that being said, what was striking to me is that Clinton told me that as she was talking to these women, Her sense of them was that they thought that the sexism might not be as much as it was, especially because they'd all run for Senate before. They had all won in competitive races and they had done big policy things. These are women who are already operating at the highest echelons of political power in Washington. They're not strangers to a tough political fight, electorally or otherwise. But the fact that the presidential arena is just so different. It's so hyper-masculine a role. It's so executive a role. It was different. And the forces that these women were subjected to, as far as Hillary Clinton was telling me, were different than what they expected. And of course, she says she knew what they were going through because she had been through it herself twice. One of the other things about these women running for president in 2020, you heard candidates talking about childcare, pre-K, universal pre-K. Elizabeth Warren spoke often about her struggle as a mother, a working Mm -hmm. mother, trying to find childcare and balance her ambitions with raising a family. How radical was it to hear about some of these things in the context of a presidential campaign? It's almost radical because we've heard about them in the policy conversation before, but they've been secondhand, right? Like, In some of these cases, you're talking about issues that directly impact women, especially when you're talking about family issues. A lot of that invisible labor that happens in the home around childcare predominantly does fall to women. And so when politicians had been talking about this in the past, if you were a man, sometimes you were doing it as a secondhand source or not necessarily the primary caregiver. In these instances, you had women who were giving their direct experiences. And that's really important when you think about how policy is made and what issues are prioritized, I then think about the way that it translated from the 2020 presidential field to becoming a priority in the Biden-Harris campaign in the general election. And then during the transition, because there had been such a premium placed 
on the care economy, on racial inequality issues. Those things were then not bugs, but features of the Biden-Harris administration, especially in those early hundred days. So then when you look at the way it manifested in Congress, in those early iterations of Build Back Better, the care economy, universal pre-K, child care, those were key things that were part of the conversation, paid family leave. A lot of female lawmakers, including Pramila Jayapal, people who didn't run for president, were part of keeping that front and center in the conversation. We know, of course, where that reconciliation package ended up. It ended up without care economy items. And I think it's striking that those issues that could have most benefited women were some of the first things that were taken off the table. But nonetheless, it does go to show you the power of not just having women at the table for policy, but at the table in a presidential election, sort of setting the agenda for the party in a really big way. Representation matters. It's not an empty phrase for sure. Um, Let's talk about how some of these women were covered. We have this really uh, tremendous, unique moment in terms of the political press corps, where now you actually have covering some of these presidential candidates, a majority of women oftentimes. It's not the boys on the bus anymore at all. Often it's the girls on the bus, which I think is outstanding and a wonderful development. Me too. Um, one of the chapters that really struck me in your book was when you revisited this moment in the campaign, what we might call the Kamala Harris sparkly jacket. Incident. <laughs> um, she had with her at the time, you and a number of other f- women reporters covering her as she was on a shopping trip uh, in South Carolina, I believe, and found a sparkly jacket Mm -hmm. to buy. This got blown way out of proportion. Um, And as you point out in your book, particularly among sort of the white male media set. Um, So I'd love to get your thoughts on how having more women in the press corps changes coverage of presidential campaigns, especially when you have women candidates out there. Um, And, you know, the work, the work that's left to be done there. I felt like as a woman who was part of a predominantly female press corps, especially the one that followed Elizabeth Warren, but also the one that followed Kamala Harris, it was helpful because you were able to pick up the subtle nuances of gendered narratives before they even started. And frankly, as someone who's involved in setting those narratives, just by the way you report on these people, these candidates every day, you can kind of stop it before it starts. That's not to say it's a perfect science. And certainly... Our job is to not make it easier for women candidates to run. That's not the goal at all. But certainly leveling the playing field and making sure that they're running in an environment where they can be judged on their merits is important. But even as I detail in the book, that sparkly jacket moment, so instructive of the fact that it is celebrated and necessary to have diverse press corps following diverse candidates. And yet there are still some people who will think that it's frivolous when female reporters go with a female candidate on a retail shopping trip, one that we've seen candidates take over and over again. Mitt Romney went on shopping trips where he bought things for his wife. Uh, President Obama went to the Gap famously, buying some things for his wife, Michelle Obama, and their daughters. Men have gone shopping to make political points and to bond with communities that they're trying to win voters in for years. No one has batted an eye. But the fact that Kamala Harris went to a shop that was owned by a woman on Lady Street to highlight not just a local, not just the local economy, but also someone in that community who was doing positive things for their community, that story got completely co-opted in favor of Kamala Harris having a moment of levity with her press corps. And you and I know what it's like to be part of those press corps. You're following these candidates at all times. You are asking them skeptical questions. You are holding them to account. But also not every single moment is like insane tension 
sometimes you're allowed to get to know these candidates that you can better report on them for your viewers and for your readers. That's kind of the point of being embedded in a campaign. And so to have a moment of levity with this candidate while she was shopping didn't strike any of us as odd. You had experienced reporters there who were covering their second or third presidential campaigns. And yet conservative white men on media really had a problem with the fact that this was happening. And I just couldn't help but feel like, oh, suddenly we have a problem with a retail shop, a retail stop when it's a woman candidate, when men have been doing this for decades. Right. And of course, if, you know, Kamala Harris had been out skeet shooting or what have you, there would have been Lindsey questions Graham about- did, Which Ted Cruz right. has done. Yep. But then there would have been questions about authenticity and, you know, is she an authentic candidate? So it really is. Exactly. Sort of- Oh, or even I think about news. it in this lens as well, too. John Hickenlooper was someone who came up an entrepreneur in as an entrepreneur owning breweries. One of his early campaign stops in Colorado for the presidential campaign was at one of his breweries. No one balked at the idea that John Hickenlooper could be drinking a beer. But when Elizabeth Warren tried to do it in her kitchen on Instagram Live, people were freaking out because it just didn't seem to gel with this woman who was a smart, policy-driven professor And also someone who could have a beer in her kitchen. For some reason, those things couldn't live in the same place to me, despite the fact that women are complex people who can have policy ideas and also like beer. So when you spoke with Hillary Clinton about this campaign, did she feel that progress had been made for women candidates that were moving in the right direction? What was her reaction? Yes. And we also ended our conversation in the same place that I think so many of these conversations end, which is hoping that we will see it in our lifetime and also hoping that we can retire the phrase of saying that. Because at a certain point, all of these ideas about why we're still so far from a woman in the White House are important and help us get there. But at the same time, you kind of just got to do it in order for it to get done. And what we've seen in the last few years, especially with the elevation of Kamala Harris as vice president, is that women are physically closer than they've ever been before to the Oval Office, but they have been elevated to get there and not elected in their own right. And that is the last hurdle that it's going to take because it's going to take a woman rising to the level that Hillary Clinton did, being the second woman elected as the head of a major party to run in a general election. And then it's going to take winning that. I think this is a perfect time for us to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue talking about the road ahead. Ali, talk to you again in a minute. Every two weeks, HBS measures U.S. adults' feelings and expectations for the economy. The Civic Science Economic Sentiment Index, powered by HBS, accurately measures movements in overall national economic sentiment, and provides a more sophisticated alternative to existing economic sentiment indices. To learn more, contact us through hamiltonplacestrategies.com. And we're back. Allie, let's talk about your interview with Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. She was one of the candidates who ran in 2020, one of those groundbreaking woman candidates you write about, and she lost. She told Mm -hmm. you pretty bluntly in your book that it wasn't the right time for a woman to run, that basically after four years of Trump, voters wanted certainty, not change, and women in this case represented change. But at the same time, you look at someone like Pete Buttigieg, who is an openly gay man, um, also a groundbreaking sort of candidate. And he was able to win in Iowa, obviously not the whole thing, 
But I just wonder how you square that. What is the difference here for voters? I think that this is a difference that we actually got to watch the candidates parse through in real time. There was that news cycle where Senator Amy Klobuchar talked about the fact that she didn't think that a woman with Mayor Pete's resume would be able to be taken as seriously or rise as quickly as he had within the Democratic presidential ranks because their qualifications would be questioned more. I remember viewing that news cycle as Klobuchar just sort of stating a fact. I was surprised, actually, when people thought that it was her not speaking to a reality that women on the campaign trail were experiencing, especially because Mayor Buttigieg's rise, now Secretary Buttigieg's rise, was meteoric. He's really the only one in that massive field of candidates who was able to jump very high out of the tier of candidates that he entered the field in and become one of the top four people who was in contention for the nomination. That was a really stunning rise that he was able to make. It required a lot of political acuity and strategy to get it done. But at the same time, it is hard for me to realize or think about a Mayor Paula with the same resume and the same age and the same qualifications being able to do the exact same thing. So Klobuchar parsed this out in real time. And yeah, look, it was a way for her to try to talk about her own experience. Klobuchar really wanted to lead and campaign on the receipts of the work that she had done in Washington. But at the same time, it is kind of true. Like, I don't know that America would take a woman with Mayor Pete's pedigree as seriously as he was taken. And I think that's another example of the double edge. Women need to be more than qualified, more than qualified than their male opponents in order to be taken seriously and clear these basic viability thresholds which men are generally given more of the benefit of the doubt for. Moreover, I think what you see in the case of Mayor Pete is someone who was fully campaigning on their potential, their potential to flip voters who are Republican. He used to call them future former Republicans. He was campaigning on the potential of what he could do in Washington, having never operated in that town before, whereas the women were not campaigning on their potential. They were campaigning on the things that they had done, the elections that they had won, the issues that they had succeeded successfully legislated on in Washington, they had receipts, but many of the men were campaigning on the potential to get the receipts. And that's something that we allow men to do more easily than women candidates. With this dynamic, you make me think of corporate America as well, because we've seen mm. research and studies to suggest that women are less likely to apply for jobs than men if they are not fully qualified. We yep. look- the top of corporate America right now, 44 out of 500 Fortune 500 CEOs are women. That's the highest ever, but it's still only 8.8%. I I wonder if some of these lessons from politics and from campaigns, some of the challenges that women face can also be applied to the corporate sphere as well. And vice versa, because nothing happens in a vacuum, right? Executive leadership as a whole shapes society. It's what we see on our television screens, you know, fictional president presidents who are women. It's what we see in corporate America, who's leading in boardrooms and C-suites. All of that is really important. And then you, of course, look into the political sphere where women are leading. Like you have a wave of women who came into Congress on the Democratic side in 2018. Republicans got with it as well in 2020, adding to their female ranks, especially in the House. And then there's also still the reality that you haven't had a female president, the most executive of all of the executive roles. And it sort of speaks to, yeah, the studies that you're talking about, which kind of talks to the pipeline issues that had previously been in play here. The idea that women were running later in life, maybe after their kids were out of the house, that is changing. It's a dynamic that we see Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, among others, as someone who's challenging in real time because they're running with young children still. 
And that is something that puts more women in the pipeline earlier so that they're able to ratchet up the amount of things that are on their political resume to make them more viable presidential candidates later in life. And it's partly why I really do believe that we're not going to see presidential primary cycles that have no women running in them ever again, which is an amazing thing, especially because it's not been a given in the past. But I think now both parties have enough women in the pipeline who are viable, who are powerful, who have command of the issues, and who can mount credible presidential runs going forward. The asterisk to that, of course, is the fact that in 2024, men are still the leaders of both of the two major parties. Joe Biden says he's going to run for president again, and Donald Trump is very likely to mount a presidential bid at any point in the next few weeks, quite frankly. So it's going to be interesting to see the ways that the fields jockey around them. You look at someone like Congresswoman Liz Cheney, though, it's clear that she is at least looking at a presidential run. And that means that you're going to see a female alternative in that space at a time where I especially think in Republican politics, if you look at who's trying to hold Donald Trump accountable right now, it is women, by and large, women leading the charge, people like Congresswoman Liz Cheney. I was just in Alaska with Senator Lisa Murkowski. She's one of the women who has voted to in voted to convict the former president of impeachment charges. She's regularly been critical of him and does not want him to be the person that the cult of personality is associated around for Republicans. And then, of course, there's the women from within the Trump administration who have come forward and testified for the January 6th committee. Women are very much at the forefront of the conversation around accountability in Trump and in the Republican Party right now. So it's going to be fascinating to see the way, even though Republicans sort of issue politics, it's there and we're going to have to talk about it. It's going to be such an interesting dynamic in 2024, to be sure. On the other hand, you have voters and their readiness or perceived readiness for a woman president. This is a big part of your book as well. Can you tell me a little bit about what you heard from women voters on the campaign trail when you asked about some of these women candidates? I love that you say perceived readiness because you look at 2016 and Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. That is not a small accomplishment, although it's not the way we elect our presidents in this country. It is a metric that says that the majority of people who voted in that cycle we're ready for a female president. Then you take that into 2018 and into 2020, where you see polls that talk about how Americans are open to female leadership. It looks like, according to one study that I reference in the book, that in a Democratic primary field that's going to be very diverse and very female-filled, that the ground is kind of ripe for them and their candidacies. That was in theory. And then I think what happens in practice is that voters start assigning political profiles. You start seeing who these people are. Their personalities come into play. And all of a sudden, when it comes to these women candidates, for both political reasons and the other ones that are more intangible, there's just something about them that women can't get behind or that voters broadly can't get behind because the women vote for Democrats in presidential elections has actually stayed pretty consistent. The gender gap is widened by men becoming more conservative. So when you talk about the gender gap, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. But more broadly, it's this idea of electability. And it's why I call the book electable, because at the end of the day, it's not unfair for voters to want to pick someone who can win. And you and I both know that in 2020, the only thing that every single Democratic voter agreed on is that their top priority was beating Donald Trump. There was the shadow of Hillary Clinton's loss to him that loomed over all of this. And then there was this idea that because they had never seen a woman win before, it felt unsure. The words that Senator Gillibrand used are words that I heard time and time again. The idea 
that someone with the profile of Joe Biden, both politically moderate and being a straight white man of a certain age, his profile made him safe, made him comfortable, made him unrisky, despite the fact that he had run for president two times before and not gotten there. So really, it was an untested theory of electability where people were willing to give him the benefit of the doubt because he looked like almost all of the other people who had held the job before. And you look no further than a poll that was done in real time and then another study that was done at Stanford after the election that showed if voters had a magic wand, Elizabeth Warren was their candidate of choice at one point. But when they talked about a horse race candidate, Joe Biden won that poll. And it's because voters were actively switching their votes based on who they thought would win, not who they wanted to win. And so it actually impacts women's bottom lines as well. It's amazing. And I really do wonder what could happen in 2024, you know, with Donald Trump running. Do we see that fear dynamic in the Democratic Party repeat itself? Or, you know, in a universe where Donald Trump is not on the ballot, is that the moment when a woman candidate can finally break through? Um, Mm. I want to wrap up with the thought that obviously at the end of this story, the 2020 election, someone, a woman did break through in a sense, Kamala Harris, Mm -hmm. the first woman vice president, she wasn't elected to that position. She was chosen. So in one sense, obviously groundbreaking. In another sense, this hurdle still has not been cleared. What was your takeaway from Kamala Harris being chosen as vice president? And does, does this seem like progress? I play with this idea of being elevated but not elected throughout the book because it's a really important dynamic to pay attention to. On the one hand, women and operatives who I spoke to in both parties agree that having Kamala Harris as the vice president is hugely impactful and actually helps every woman who will run after her because it allows Americans to see women in an executive role second in line for the presidency. That's a huge moment in history, a huge moment of breaking that glass ceiling. And also Kamala Harris being elevated just shows us that there's still more work to be done. It's that two women stand behind the president of the United States when he gives the State of the Union. You have Madam Vice President and Madam Speaker, and yet both of them were elevated, not outright elected by American voters. And that is still the thing that has been unattainable for women candidates. Well, it is, I think, just a matter of time. But as your book lays out, uh, there are still a number of factors that need to align for this to happen in America. Put the emphasis on yet, though. (laughs) Yes, I love that in your title. That is perfect. Ali, it's been so wonderful speaking with you and catching up. Thank you for coming on the program. Ali's new book is Electable, Why America Hasn't Put a Woman in the White House Yet?, And it's out right now. Ali, thank you. Good luck on the campaign trail. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And thank you for tuning in to HPS Insights. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights and follow us on the web at HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com. 